لحظة بس In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will continue our Bible study in Psalm 104. This Psalm reflects on the creation and on God as creator and how his majesty and his glory is revealed to us through the creation and in return we should praise God and glorify him for his majesty and for his glory from verse 1 to 17 he spoke about the creation of the light and also the creation of the vegetation creation of the herb in order to feed actually the man and the beast. In verse 17, he spoke about how in the tall trees of the cedar of Lebanon, the birds make their nests and the stork her home in the fir tree. Then from the grass, and from the vegetation and from the vine in the previous verses and from the bread as adapted to sustain the living being upon the earth the sun starting from verse 18 from the great grand trees which are the home of the birds and he made a natural transition to the majestic grand mountains which are the home of the animals so in verse 17 he spoke about how the how the birds live in the trees and in verse 18 he spoke about how the animals live in the mountain as we read in verse 18 the high hills are for the wild goats the cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are for a refuge for the rock badgers. So even the mountains are designed by God for the goodness of his creatures. The mountains provide refuge for the wild goats when the hunter pursue them and even the mountains does not give food to the goats but the mountains give them safety because there is no vegetation on the mountains so the idea is that nature is full of life even the mountains even the most inaccessible places like the high hills and the cliffs have the animals their habitations there then in verse 19 he spoke about the moon and the sun he appointed the moon for seasons 
The sun knows it's going down. The psalmist turned his attention to the moon and the sun. The book of Genesis talks about the creation of the sun and the moon in the fourth day, as we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. And here the psalmist emphasizes that by their creation, God has set the seasons of the years and the day and the night for the benefit of man. And as we know, the Jewish feasts depended greatly on the moon. For example, the feast of Passover is celebrated on the 14th, which is the full moon of the first month. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, not solar calendar. Also, the sun is no mere mechanical clock, but a conscious servant of God. The sun knows the exact time of setting and never varies, but always obeys the divine commandment. As he says in verse 19, the sun knows it's going down. Verse 20, you make darkness and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. Many fathers ask the question why he spoke about the sun knows it's going down and he did not mention anything about the moon knows, for example, when it comes or when it disappears. Why the sun knows? For example, St. John Chrysostom said, the moon here is drawing his light from the unseen sun. At night we don't see the sun, but we see only the moon. And he said the moon represents the synagogue in the Old Testament, appointed only for seasons of the law and prophets. So the moon represents the Old Testament the law and the prophet. Not knowing the mystery of passion, they prophesied about the mystery of salvation. They, it was not revealed to them. But only the son of righteousness himself knew of his coming crucifixion. That is why David said the sun knows, but he did not mention anything about the moon. So only the sun is said to know. For the moon depends on the sun and has no independent light of his own and therefore must draw his knowledge from the sun as the church drives all her knowledge and wisdom from Christ. So the moon also represented the church. When the Lord said to us, you are the light of the world, and he said about himself, I am the light of the world. He is the sun, and we are reflecting his light. So the moon represented the church. God knows everything, but the church drives its knowledge from the sun. The sun who is our wisdom. The sun and the moon 
they operate according to God's plan, providing darkness so that all the beasts of the forest creep about, as we read here, in which in the night all the beasts of the forest creep about. What does it mean to creep about? Maybe the reference here is to the quiet and noiseless manner in which the animals come forth at night to search for their prey. Usually, the animals come at night to search for their prey. Or creep about, meaning for their hiding places, the place where they hide themselves in the daytime. These are not the only creatures that choose night and darkness, but wicked men also choose night and darkness. As the Lord said, for everyone practices evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So the beasts here represent or a symbol of the wicked people. In verse 21, there is a continuation to verse 20. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they, the lions, gather together and lie down in their dens. So they hide themselves in the dens. So verse 21 and 22 are continuation of verse 20. At night, beasts which had been hidden in the daytime crawl forth and seek their food. The lions roar. Why? To terrify their prey. Because the roaring of the lions are so terrible. To overwhelm and quiet the animal which he pursues so that these preys fall down and become an easy prey for them. Also, he mentioned here the young lions, not the lions. Why? Because the appetite of young lions is extreme, and their voice, their roaring, is loudest and strongest. But what's beautiful here, he said even the lions seek their food from God, they are dependent on God for their food and sought it at his hand. So it is a beautiful idea that even the animal creation act as if they call on God and seek the supply of their needs at his hands. But lions and beasts are symbol of Satan. St. Peter said about Satan, who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But how can we say Satan is seeking their meat from God? Because as we read in the story of Job, even Satan 
He cannot tempt any man unless God grants him permission. Just as God provided the night, he also provided the day. In the night, the young lions pursue their prey to find their food. But in the daytime, the lions and other night animals lie down in their dens. When the sun rises, they, the lions, gather together and lie down in their dens. But what happens also after the sun rises? Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So when the lions sleep, man goes out to his work until the evening. So all creatures operate according to God's wise plan for creation. Spiritually speaking, once the sun of righteousness shine in the life of the believer, the demons gather together and hide in their dens and lose their authority on the true believer. So the wicked men don't care for the light of the day, representing God, nor do false teachers choose to come to the light of the word of God. That's why scholar Tertullian called them owls and bats. Satan himself chooses to set upon people when they are in the darkness, when they are, in, they are not in the light of Christ. Also, we can say before the resurrection, the evil spirits had greater power in the world this considered the dark time. As St. Peter spoke about the prophets were like lamps shining until the sun of righteousness came and enlightened the world. Before resurrection, the lion, Satan, has greater power in the world. But now after the sun of righteousness has shone on the world, the power of Satan is restricted and they are, the demons are compelled to lie down in their dens. And man goes out to his work. This is the res result of sunrise, teaching us the contrast between man who is created in the likeness of God and beast. The wild beast hide in daytime to avoid capture, but roam about at night for prey. While the man, gifted with reason, rest in the night and toil in the day. Everyone on whom Christ shine is prompted to toil for him, for the son of righteousness, and that till the evening of life, until he dies physically the evening of life. Verse 24, O Lord, how many fold are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your positions. So the psalmist continues in amazement as he looks at nature and creation. 
he sees it all as the wise work of the great God who has right of ownership of all the creation. That's why he said, your positions. The earth is full of your positions. God is the real owner. He said, how manifold? Manifold, the reference of the number and the variety of the works of God in the creation and to the wisdom displayed in all of them. The psalmist does not assume to answer his own question when he said, how manifold are your works? So this is not a question to be answered. He's not waiting for an answer because he confesses God's works to be greater than his power of expression. So this question is a question of exclamation. No one can express the wisdom or the number or the variety of your creation. No one can estimate the number of creatures God has made on earth. No one can comprehend the richness of the variety. And as the Lord is a creator, he is also the owner and possessor of heaven and earth and all that is in them. And whatever of the riches and good things of the earth men may have, even the richest person on earth, they are only steward. The Lord is the rightful owner and their possessor. Because all of us will die and whatever riches we have, we will leave it behind. Also we can see the Holy Trinity in verse 24. When he said, how manifold are your work, you're here, God the Father. In wisdom, that's God the Son. You have made them all. Because God created the world by his Son. And the earth is full of your position. That's the Holy Spirit who actually fills all of us. So your works teaches of God the Father, the source of all things. And wisdom tells us of the Son, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Your position is spoken of the Holy Spirit who fills the world with many gifts. Verse 25. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There in the sea and oceans, the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. So in verse 25, he's reflecting on the great and wide sea. The sea actually, as it seems to us, stretch out in all direction, in which are innumerable teeming things, refers to the variety of the inhabitants of the seas and oceans. Spiritually, the great and wide sea is the world, is the life of this present world, full of innumerable teeming things, full of temptation, dangers, waves, both small and great, through which man must pass before he can reach the peaceful shores of eternal life. 
the vast waters contain innumerable teeming things, include great and mysterious things, such as Leviathan. Also Leviathan, we can read about him in Job chapter 41, verse 1. Who is Leviathan? This may mean large sea animal. In Job 41, the description is about the crocodile. So Leviathan is the crocodile in the book of Job. Then he said there in the oceans and the sea, the ships sail about from place to place, from one end of the world to the other, for the sake of merchandise. Also, this is one of the four things that were too wonderful to King Solomon, as we read in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 19, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea. I remember when we were in middle school, they used to ask us this question in physics. How a small nail sinks in the water, but the huge ship floats on, on the water. The sailing ships are wonders. As we know that the original of ships was doubtless Noah's Ark designed by God himself. So the idea of having ship sailing in the water was given by God. And the law of floating, why, as I said, a huge ship does not sink, but a small nail sink in the water. So the ships here also seem to be a symbol of the church and the people of God passing through the sea of this world. Also the ships can be the preachers who carry Christ into the hearts of men. And some fathers comment that the way to heaven must be over the waters of baptism. So these ships, like our journey toward heaven, through the waters of baptism and tears of repentance. Then he said about Leviathan to play there as his natural element to move about their end. That's the crocodile. But also this creature, Leviathan, is generally viewed as a figure of Satan. So Leviathan is symbolically is Satan. He is the king over all the children of pride. And he is the prince of the power of air and God of this world. Has been playing his tricks from the beginning, not only deceiving our first parents, Adam and Eve, but until now he is deceiving all the nations of the world. Verse 27, these all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. We say this in the litany for the waters in the divine liturgy. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. So the psalmist once again turns to the contemplation of God's continual providence and care for his creation. 
God is active and relentless ruler. All living things live by his abundance. He provides for all of us, all of us, man and animal. The psalmist considered all kinds of created things from land, sea, air, and recognized that they all, all creatures, are depending upon God who provide their food in due season. So all the creatures have no other ground of expectation or hope but in God. And the word due season means God has a timing for all things. And all wait for you, which instruct us to wait for the Lord, as not only for our daily bread, but also for our spiritual food. And in prayer, we need to wait for the Lord, where and from whom we may have hope and expect to have it. God feeds the animals, but does not actually rain the food from heaven into their mouth. That's why in verse 28, he said, what you give them, they gather in. So there is divine part and human part. The divine part God provides, but the human part, I go and gather it. If I don't work, as St. Paul said, he who does not work should not eat. So what you give them, they gather in. You open your hands, God open your hand, that all are filled with good. So God's his hand are open, but we need to gather from the hand of God. God feeds the animals, but does not from heaven pour food into their mouths. He provides but they must gather in. What God places before them, they collect. They have no resources of their own. It is God who gives. This is a wonderful way for God's people to think of his provision. God provides, but we must gather in. Maybe also this verse, there is a reference to the gathering of the manna in the wilderness when it was provided by God, but people had to collect it for their own use. Also God, in whose hand all things are, and from which all things come, open his hands of providence, and liberally and bountifully gives us all. All his creatures are filled with good things to their satisfaction, and thus the spiritual, not only the physical food, but the spiritual food which he gives his people, they gather it by the hand of faith. And the Israelites gather the manna in the wilderness every morning. It's a beautiful prayer when every morning you ask God to send you the manna, but you need to go and gather it. You need to go and collect it. St. Augustine says, What is it, O Lord, that you open your hand? What does this mean? Christ is your hand. So God is God the Father, and the hand of God is Christ. 
as we read, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord is Christ. To whom it is revealed? And to whom it is opened? Because revelation is opening. So when the Prophet said, to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed, he is asking, to whom the hand of God is opened? When you open your hand, they shall all be filled with good. When you reveal your Christ, they shall all be filled with good, but they have not good from themselves. This is oftentimes proved unto them. So to those Christ is revealed, to those who believed in Christ, then they are filled with good. But this good is not from ourselves. And, and God proves this to us. Verse 29. So when God opened his hands, all are filled. What if, if he hides his face? You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So the hiding of God's face is usually the symbol of his wrath, but here it denotes rather the withdrawal of his providential care. When God hides his face, instantly we feel the loss. As the psalmist said, they are troubled, cast down, and defeated. Not only is the food which sustains life dependent on the constant providence of God, but even the very breath of life is his to be sent forth or withdrawn at his will. So he said, you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. God has the power of life and death in his hand. As he is the giver of life, also he takes it away. That's why any intervention to end the life of a human being, even for medical reason, it's against the authority of God. Because God has the authority to give life and to withdraw it. And as a withdrawal of his spirit from any man means spiritual death, if he withdraw our physical breath, we will die physically. But if he withdraw also his spirit from us, it's a spiritual death as we read about King Saul. And the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So a man thus punished to return to their dust, as God said to Adam, you are dust, and to the dust you return, and becomes the target of the creeping serpent. When God said to Adam, you will return to the dust, and said to the serpent, you will eat the dust of the earth. God turns away his face sometimes, lest men attribute good by which they are filled to their own merit or holiness. So sometimes God doesn't open his hand, but he withdraw his face, he hides his face. So we know that anything good we have in our life, 
it is given by him. And to teach us that his open hand is its efficient cause. Any blessing in our life because of his open hand. So that if he hide his face will become troubled till we pray to see once more the light of his face. According to St. Augustine, the Lord in his mercy, after he has troubled sinners, take away from them the spirit of pride and rebellion, so that they die to their sins and make their confession to God in the dust of humility and repentance. That's a beautiful reflection on this verse. He said, you hide your face, they are troubled. So he hide his face from the sinners. So the sinners are troubled. Then you take away their breath. God takes the spirit of pride from them. So they die to the sins of the world and return to the dust of repentance and humiliation. That's how St. Augustine actually interpreted this verse. Also, verses 30 and 31 literally explain how God returned one generation to their dust and then actually create another generation. So after one generation dies, God calls a new generation into being and thus refills the earth with creatures of every species. So here after verse 30, when he said they die and return to their dust, then God creates another human being, another animals, another birds. You sent forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. That's why generation comes after generation. That's the literal meaning of these two verses. Creation continues. For God is continually sending forth his spirit and renewing the face of the earth with new life. The world is as full of creatures as if none died. Actually, the number of creatures in the world increases. For the place of those that dies is filled up. So people die and people are born. But these two verses may point to the continual work of the Holy Spirit in the church for the transformation of sinners and their renewal by the new birth of baptism and new cleansing of repentance. So people die, the old man dies in the water of baptism and then they are regenerated. You send your spirit upon them and they are new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endures forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. The psalmist begins this psalm with the praise of God's glory, and he ends the psalm with prayer for its everlasting endurance. The glory of God endures forever. And as we said, God is glorified even before the creation, but his glory is revealed through the creation. As the psalmist considered the power and wisdom of God in all creation, it made him long for his glory to endure forever. 
And the language means a strong conviction that the glory of God would endure forever. The mind of the psalmist was filled with wonder at the beauty and variety of the works of God on earth, in air, in waters. And he exclaims with a heart full of admiration that the glory of God who had made all these things could never cease, but must endure forever. This creation may pass away. God's work actually may pass away, but his glory will never pass away, endures forever. Then he said, May the Lord rejoice in his works, being well pleased with the works, as he was with the works of creation. And God saw everything, and it was very good, as we read in Genesis chapter 1. The psalmist may still follow Genesis in representing God as looking on his finished works with pleasure. God saw everything he has done, and they were very good. Then, in verse 32, he looks on the earth. Just God, if looks on the earth, it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. The earth tremble. God has only to look upon his work and they stand in awe and tremble. The trembling earth and the smoking hills may be also a reference when God appeared to Moses on the Mount Sinai. These are reminders of the overwhelming power and might of God. If he looks to the earth, the earth will tremble. If he touches the hill, it will smoke. So a displeased look will make the heart of his own children tremble. As St. Peter, when the Lord looked at him, and he remembered what the Lord told him, he wept bitterly. St. Augustine says, May God look on you and make you tremble, for the trembling of humility is better than the confidence of pride. The trembling of humility is better than the confidence of pride. Some commentators see here a prophecy of the earthquake which shall precede the judgment day and the smoke of the everlasting fire. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. So, the effect of the psalmist meditation on the wonderful works of God stirred in his mind a desire to praise God forever. He is so filled with a sense of God's greatness and glory that he would praise him all his life, as long as I exist. God of all creation is worthy of our lifelong praise. Actually, the entire lifetime of praise would be insufficient to honor God properly. He said, I will sing, indicate our due service of praise and worship during all this mortal life. 
I will praise implies action. And the word signifies and tells us of the service of good works never to cease in this life. So we need actually to praise God and to do good works as sign of gratefulness all the days of our life. Then he said, May my meditation be sweet to him, knowing the greatness and goodness of God as revealed in creation. So the psalmist desire that his thoughts may be pleasing to God and be sweet. Some commentator related to confession. May my meditation, may my confession, in some translation, be sweet to him, and I will be glad in the Lord. For though confession is better to man when we confess our weakness, who offers it, but it is sweet to God who receives it, because it's a sign of repentance and returning back to God. However, in confession, all our sins are washed away, and the peace returns, and the soul becomes joyful. That's why he said, I will be glad in the Lord. When all pleasure in the worldly delights has passed forever from the soul, then God rejoices when men offer sincere confession and to hear their prayers, as we read in Proverbs 8.31, my delight was with the sons of men. So what's repentance? That our pleasure in the delights of the world will pass away. Then we confess our weakness and return to God. Then God actually rejoices, as he said, heaven rejoices with the return of one sinner. So God rejoices when man offers sincere confession. And then God will be delighted to hear our prayers. As he said, my delight was with the sons of men. Also, there is also a note of determination when he said, I will be glad in the Lord. He chose to be glad in the Lord, making a rational choice in the light of God's revelation of himself through creation. Joy is a choice, not a feeling. I will be glad in the Lord. It is a choice, not a feeling. When he saw the glory and the majesty of God in his creation, he made a rational choice to be glad in the Lord. The last verse, verse 35. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. I want you to notice he did not say consumed eternally, but consumed from the earth. When the sinners repent, then the sinners will be consumed from the earth because everyone will be righteous. The same about the wicked be no more when they repent. And he concluded by saying, Let the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. Alleluia. So the psalmist ends with a prayer for the restoration of the harmony of creation by removal of all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Once sin entered the world, we lost our harmony. The harmony of creation was lost. That's why he is praying for the restoration of the harmony of the creation 
by removal of all sins and wickedness. And according to St. Jerome, the psalmist did not say, may sinners be eternally consumed, but said, may sinners be consumed from the earth. The psalmist does not seek their eternal perdition, but seeks their return from evil, wishing that the wicked will be no more on earth. How? When they repent. And then he said, and the wicked be no more. Here the repetition for emphasis. He prays that this disharmony of the wicked may be corrected by their repentance and sinners be consumed by the fire of the Holy Spirit. So the fire of the Holy Spirit consumed all weakness and all wickedness in their heart. He prays that they may have no earthliness left remaining in them, but that all their ungodliness may come to an end. Then the psalmist saw all of this in a prophetic way that all the earth will be righteous and everyone is filled with joy. That's why he said, Bless the Lord. Being filled with joy, he said, Bless the Lord. Then to all mankind may well be called upon to join in the praise and to sing as saints and angels sing in heaven. Hallelujah. Because hallelujah means literally praise the Lord. So he's calling all the creatures to praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This concludes Psalm 104. Glory be to God forever and ever.